because I'm not starting a company with a startup. A startup is a different animal. It's like the caterpillar and the butterflies, the company. During the caterpillar phase, I don't have to quit my job. I don't even have to quit school. I can validate the business model, putting in some of my time and doing my work analytical work to validate a business model. It's not until it becomes a butterfly in a real company where I need employees that I can have to quit and really start a company up. And so we're in an era with a mechanism to do that. So the risk can really be mitigated. Welcome back to Walk Like Beggars. My name is Steven. My name is John. And today we're going to be interviewing John Richards. He's a serial entrepreneur, angel investor, and mentor. He started working with the Yellow Pages in the dot-com era, had a magnificent exit, and now has just become a serial entrepreneur and investor, making other people's dreams come true. Yeah, I personally know John. Uh, fun story, he like grew up in the neighborhood, or he moved into the neighborhood I grew up with. I, I still remember my first memory was he set up these huge floodlights at night so we could play football with his sons. And he's just an awesome guy, super excited about life, um, loves entrepreneurism, supports anyone who's about it, and has incredible insights. So if you're an entrepreneur wanting to start a business, you can learn from John about what he looks for in a successful entrepreneur and who he would invest in. And a fun little thing about him now is he runs a boot camp for entrepreneurs called Startup Ignition. I took the course, really insightful. Um, it's just fast paced. I mean, he will speak a million words a minute and the whole time you're just like, should I take notes or I can't look down? It's just so much good information. So really enjoyed sitting down with him. Fun interview. Guys, get ready to dive in. Well, I'm John Richards, and I consider myself an entrepreneur, an investor, a mentor, and an advisor in the entrepreneurial ecosystem. And so how I got started in entrepreneurship, I'll go back before that, I was always pre-med. As a high school student and as a college student, I thought I was going to be a doctor. So I was uh, pre-med on my way. My major was chemistry, and uh, which is probably the second hardest major oh, on man. any college campus. <laughs> yeah. And uh, after chemical engineering, which might be number one hardest. Uh, and so I uh, was pursuing that. All the way up until, um, and I was married in college, and then uh, we had a stillborn child. So our first baby died um, at birth. And uh, that was very traumatic experience, and I was pre-med up until that point. And I learned from that experience I wasn't so crazy about the life of a doctor, which was interesting. And then also the pre-med program at Brigham Young University for my undergraduate education uh, had you shadow a doctor for a day and see what their life is like and literally if they were at home or whatever and you go and do that and it was really fascinating and I found out I wasn't crazy about when the surgeon cut into the person and blood came out <laughs> I didn't really like queasy. that I didn't yeah. like that as much as and and also how the spouses of the doctors or surgeons were mowing the lawn and doing all this work and and it's just a different lifestyle than I had thought. So that's kind of a good tip for anybody. If you think you want to be something or do something, you should go shadow and watch what the life's really like so yeah. that you don't have this rosy picture of it. And so uh, after those experiences, in my, which were late in my junior year, early senior year, I um, 
decided I didn't want to go to medical school and I had to tell my wife uh, a little bait and switch here because I wanted to be a doctor but I might not want to be. So my senior year at college I then kind of fell back into my love for entrepreneurship and doing businesses. When I was growing up I had all sorts of things I did even from like age five. I used to rent books out of my home to kids in the neighborhood for a nickel, like a paid-for library. I ran the Richards Basketball Association, which was a neighborhood association of boys, and I had more fun running it and collecting the dues and fees than being on a team and things like that. And I did a whole bunch of different things uh, that were in that way through middle school, junior high type uh, to high school age. And so in senior and in college, I started doing the same thing and getting back to that. And I snuck into a bunch of courses. So at BYU, I snuck into some 400-level finance classes. I even got in trouble a little bit for it. Uh, and I just loved what I was learning and seeing because I hadn't taken any of those type of classes because I was in chemistry and the science buildings. And so I really enjoyed that. So I left college not going to medical school. I got accepted into a medical school, but I didn't go. And I decided to go into entrepreneurship. So went back to my home city of Seattle from where I was going to school in Utah and got into the Yellow Pages industry. And so that was a really ripe time. It was a big opportunity. In 1984, I graduated in 85. In 1984, the Bell System, the company started by Alexander Graham Bell called AT&T, American Telephone and Telegraph, which is very different than the company that uses that name today, um, was the actual mothership phone company. And it by 1982, it became so big and powerful, the federal government decided to break it into eight different companies to weaken it so competitors could get a chance. Mm -hmm. And by 84, it was broken into these different pieces. One of the pieces of the company was Yellow Pages, very lucrative industry, very high profit margins. And so I left school and went right into doing independent Yellow Pages competing against the uh, phone company Yellow Pages. So was this a business you jumped into that was already Yeah, existing? it was a small business that existed, in, very small in Seattle, mm -hmm. had one little directory or Yellow Pages as they were called, direct, business directory, and I got involved and helped computerize it. It was in the dawn of the PC revolution too, so they did everything with manual typesetting mm -hmm and uh, all sorts of things. So this was the dawn of the age. Aldous PageMaker was the first ever uh, pagination, uh, computerized pagination system invented in Seattle actually by a company called Aldous and it was called PageMaker. And um, so I helped computerize the making of ads and listings and different things like that and uh, databases to store the data. And I did that for uh, about a year because uh, I had learned computers and some programming by being a chemistry major at BYU in the Pascal programming language and the basic programming languages. And so I did that and then uh, the um, got very involved in that and decided to start my own directories and go for it and went and got up to about seven different directories and then uh, 15 and then over a number of years it got up to about 44. It took about 
eight years. And it was a very lucrative business, growing sometimes like one three-year period. We grew 500%. It was wow. just, wow. But it was a ripe time. The phone company business had purposefully been weakened to allow competitors in. And so it was a great time to go into that business. And the entire industry was growing what we call the competitive or independent Yellow Pages industry. And I became a real leader in it. After about 10, 12 years, I was a leader sitting on uh, industry boards, often the new technology committee part of the boards and there were a lot of new technologies coming into play audio text which was audio information you could get by calling up on phones and getting information and then in 1994 um, a young guy dressed in all black came into my business and said hey someday your yellow page is going to be obsolete because there's a new thing coming called the internet i go the internet wasn't that uh isn't that the university or science thing, you know? Yeah. And uh, he goes, no, it's been commercialized now. There was a lawyer that ran an email ad campaign and got tons of business, and now people are seeing the commercial potential of this thing. This was in 90, 1994. Wow. And so in January 95, I launched the first ever online Yellow Pages. Nice. So and you listened to the man in black. <laughs> yeah. Who was that? To this day, he just came in and taught me about the internet is coming, and we didn't do business together, but wow. I, I did do Yellow Pages Online. And so um, uh, I had... I put up my own yellow pages online, and then that was in January '95, and showed it off at a Bill Gates sponsored trade show at the Westin Hotel in Seattle. And I got so much attention from that that uh, I decided to make it a real business and took it offline for a few months and figured out a real business model and decided not just to put my yellow pages directory and information online, but to also get other publishers like me around the country to go through my one portal, my one site. Okay. I, I, so instead of just calling it mycompany.com, I was saying, let's make call it yellow pages on the internet and have a common portal where we can all sell our print ads and then upgrade them to also include online ads and we'll do it all through the common thing and I ended up getting lots of people to sign up and got about 40 different publishers to sign up and then a bunch of big companies started sniffing around what I was doing including Microsoft in my backyard but there were several of the Bell companies like US West, Ameritech, Southwestern Bell, uh, Bell South that were interested in what I was doing but I talked a lot to Microsoft, spent about 10 months with them and I thought they were maybe going to buy me and get involved in this. And then as I was doing that, three guys from Microsoft that were leaving Microsoft said, we've been getting reports of your meetings. We like what you're doing. We were going to do white pages on the Internet, but we think yellow pages is better. Not just listing people, but the business side of it. So we're leaving Microsoft. Join up with us and let's do this. And so I did that. I merged in with them. Right. And uh, three guys from Microsoft more tech-oriented than I was, and we they formed the company Infospace. 30 days into Infospace, I merged my effort in with them, and we got Infospace, the company Infospace, off the ground. I sold off my print company because it was a great time to sell because it was now such a, an industry established for the last 10 years, and I, it was a good time to sell, so I sold the print company, and we launched the uh, online company and just took off in, as InfoSpace. Two years later, after doing like 4,000 partnership deals, we went public in December of 98. So last month, it was the 30th anniversary, or excuse me, the 20th anniversary uh, of our initial public offering. So we grew from four people, you know, 
remember being in an office with less than 10 people starting off and everything and then it got to about 1500 people man so that was that experience and that was the dot-com era and we everything good bad and ugly about the dot-com era happened from uh you know 96 when i merged in the effort was right before netflix or not netflix um right before netscape uh, rename themselves from the Mosaic browser to the yeah. Navigator browser and the whole internet boom take off probably before you two guys were even 10 years old or less or whatever. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Even only five Very years old. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and so that was that era and it was a crazy wild time and um, it was uh, really fascinating. And the company was all successful, never had any debt, got to about $500 million in revenue. It still exists today as a company called Blue Cora, but I left there in 2001 and retired. And so uh, awesome. that uh, six months into that, BYU, Brigham Young University, my alma mater called me up and said, hey, if you're not going to do anything, how would you like to teach? And I said, well, I don't have a PhD. And they said, no, you can teach. We th- you've spoken here, and we've gotten high ratings from speaking. We think you'd be a good teacher. And so I uh, moved my family down from Seattle. And that's when I, yeah. you met my kids. <laughs> yeah, played that football in the backyard. In the backyard, yeah, the, probably the first lights. week we were here. Yeah, yeah I remember that. And that's uh, and that's uh, how I became a professor of entrepreneurship at BYU. And I didn't know if I'd stay one year or how long did I ended up doing that for twelve years. During that time, I was also a real leader in the Utah ecosystem for entrepreneurship and angel investing. So I became managing partner of Utah Angels uh, for. Was, involved in that for over a decade and just really helped a lot i probably mentored and helped in the thousands the number of entrepreneurs i wouldn't even say in the hundreds but in the thousands just a lot of entrepreneurs and continue to do that to this day i left byu um and all during that time i was investing i've invested in companies that have had great outcomes and a lot of losers too but mm-hmm. like omniture was a good one you know wow. um company that eventually uh, was called Allegiance that went and became Merit CX which we have now here and just a lot of companies ancestry and different things that I've been an investor in and so with that I left there to the in 2013 I helped uh, Provo sell its fiber network to Google and then Google turned around and offered me to head it up in Utah. And I said, well, that's interesting. Maybe I'll do that. And so I left BYU to do that for a couple of years. And it was real fun. And Google Fiber had a great success its first year here in Provo. And I did that and then left there. And when I left there, I instead of going back to BYU to help entrepreneurs, I started a boot camp called Startup Ignition, which is a boot camp for entrepreneurs. And that's been going for about three, three and a half years. And hundreds of people have gone through it. And... Lots of great companies have come out of it, and it's fun, and that's a lot of what I do besides traveling with my wife <laughs> and yeah. stuff I do. A lot of effort is helping other entrepreneurs and yeah. doing things like that. So that's my story. I, I love, love it. it. <laughs> so I want to go back to um, when the three Microsoft guys approached you and said, hey, come join us. Were you scared at all by having, like, these three guys come at you and say, hey, Well, first come of all, they me. were so new. They came and told me, we've been getting reports of your meetings with others at Microsoft. And I yeah. didn't know that was going on. And they actually said words to me like, don't do it with Microsoft. They're just sucking your brain. They're never going to do anything with you. They're brain suckers. And I had never heard that term before. <laughs> and, you know, it was kind of funny. When I started meeting with Microsoft, I wore a suit six days a week. Mm-hmm. And the second meeting with Microsoft, they said, if you wear a tie one more time, we're going to cut it off with these pair of scissors. So, <laughs> I, you know, because I was wearing wearing suit and tie every day for business and um 
But I was meeting with them, and Microsoft also, when I was meeting with them, they were just getting the internet and checking it out, and they had put, they were, this was in the heyday of Microsoft. They had so much money. They were, they built a new campus called the Red West Campus up in Redmond, Washington, that was just dedicated to online media and trying to figure things out. And so I was having meetings there, and one day in a meeting, they asked me something I'd never been asked before. They go, John, what would you do with a billion dollars in the Yellow Pages industry if you had it? What would you do? And I kind of they probably heard me physically gulp you know like <laughs> you know and gulp at that question because i'd never asked that before and so i went and wrote a report for them and planned out what i would do with a billion dollars in the yellow pages industry and that's when these guys came back and said you're, you're teaching them and they're sucking your brain you know and you're not getting anything for it they'll never do a deal with you and so um they talked these other fellows i did say you're just less than 30 days old your decision to leave and go do this. Let me see how you do for a few months. And I did watch them for a few months actually before biting off. And then I contact them back and said, Hey, it looks like you're for real and do something. Maybe we should do something. And we quickly put a deal together and I merged my company into theirs and I didn't get any cash. I only got stock, which ended up being a good thing. Yeah. And so they just gave me stock in the merged company and we went off and built a great business that really became one of the most notable and high-flying kind of dot-com era businesses. And so that was really good and interesting. So I was a little nervous when they approached me because they were new and I didn't know that world very much, but I you know, learned a lot from being around them and studied that environment. And I was kind of cloistered in my own little world and that brought me out into the much more bigger venture world arena. Yeah. So after this man in black, mysterious <laughs> man in black comes in, he talks to you about the internet and then you said you... You started putting your yellow pages on the internet, and you went to uh, that, the trade uh, show. The trade show yeah. where it got it was called Online Advantage, sponsored by Bill Gates himself. Awesome. <laughs> so, what did you mean by did you put your yellow pages on the internet? Were you typing it in, or so to take? I it was kind of interesting when I was in the yellow page industry. I would have I had my own computer system that I did a lot of the programming for, to manage my database of businesses and records of the businesses. And so I always thought when I was sitting in my office, you know, let's say early 90s, and I had a state-of-the-art mini computer system with Weiss terminals connected to them. These may not have any meaning to you, but <laughs> older people that listen to this will know what I'm talking about. And, um, and I could turn around at my desk and look up a business by address or name and instantly find it and get all the information on that business because that was my internal systems for a Yellow Pages company, right? And I never went to the paper directory to look up business because I had this computer system. Yeah. And so when that fellow walked in and told me what was coming with the internet, I started thinking to myself, wait a minute, all the other technology attempts to get rid of paper and ink have failed. But this one, if there's ever persistent online act um, ability to search a database like I do at my desk and I have a device that's not wired and is connected, and that's the vision that was kind of seen. Mm -hmm. Said if there's a high-speed wireless connected device someday, that's going to wipe out the yellow pages industry. And I'll ask you two: When was the last time you used a yellow pages directory? I haven't seen one. Yeah. <laughs> it was a doorstop back in college. Back then, in 1994, when I heard this, it was a 25 billion dollar industry. Man, wow. <laughs> so, so um, the. Uh, so when I saw this, I saw the vision, oh man, this is going to be big. And so that's why I decided to sell my print company at the top of the value of print companies and get into this burgeoning new um, internet device. So when it went up, the first version was the database of businesses through a 
graphical user interface website was available to search businesses and find them and look them up. Wow. Yeah, and that was a new thing to be able to do. You know, that was never, you know, the ability to do that. Now the consumer could have what a person in the industry was able to do at his desk with a, you know, a mini computer system, which is interesting. So that's, and then that was just putting my company's information up online. The next version of what I did when I said I got those other partners was I took a nationwide database of business listings and allowed these 40 partners I signed up to sell advertising into it to enhance, have what we called enhanced listings and have display type banner ads. This was at the beginning of the dawn awesome. of online advertising. Huh? So exciting, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. When, do we, when was the, the dot-com crash? When was that? 2000, March of 2000 mm-hmm. started. I know the exact date, March wow. 14th, 2000. <laughs> That's crazy. Um, so you start teaching at BYU. What did you teach? Did you do like lecture series or was there any specific classes? Yeah, so when I first joined, it was interesting. I came down to help the um, Entrepreneurship Center, but also the e-business center. They were separated in those days. They're merged now. They merged about 2009-ish or so or 2010-ish. But the e-business center had just been formed by a donation from Kevin Rollins, who was the CEO of Dell Computer with Michael Dell. Mm -hmm. And he was an Orem High School graduate. And Kevin Rollins... Uh, became CEO of Dell, worked in the exact same physical office. They shared the same physical office for many years at Dell. And Kevin Rollins had donated $5 million to form uh, a uh, an e-business center at BYU. And so the director wanted me to help him become the you know non-academic director of the center. And I came down to help him. And two months into it, he was diagnosed with brain cancer. So I had to take over a lot of things that I brand new at BYU and doing and he two months into it the day after Christmas when he got diagnosed he had surgery the next day and he never came back to work and so I took over a lot of things so I taught I took over that center I taught a couple of his classes which were <laughs> you know I did for about a year or two management consulting classes and then I helped with lecture series the entrepreneurship and the e-business lecture series and did a number of things like that. I jumped right into a fast speed wow, <laughs> and doing that, so, which was fire. fun. So, and a lot of everything was about helping students and being around the students yeah. and helping them. Out of all your activities at BYU, which one did you enjoy like developing or working on the most? Oh, there's so many. I mean, one of the things I, even though I'm not at BYU anymore, that I still help with because they have me help on them on things still. Yeah, I, there was so many. When you say this, we developed. Classes. I, I guess if I had to really of all the many, many things I did, I'm really proud that I got a entry-level entrepreneurship class started. There's a lot of politics at university on classes and starting new classes and all that. And I kind of did an entrepreneurial end around on the system to get mm-hmm. this going because entrepreneurship kind of got the short end of the stick in terms of prominence in the courses and placement of attracting freshmen and sophomore students to learn about things. And so I went in and said, I want to start a new class. And I called it Business Management 170. So it was the very first business management listed class. (laughs) Introduction to Entrepreneurship. First semester I did it. 295 people signed up and I went out to the Brigham Square and brought a Ferrari and a Lamborghini and parked them out there oh my gosh. and got people a little attracted said hey you want one of these become an entrepreneur <laughs> awesome. and so then um, 295 people signed up and that's class has been going on ever since and you know and it's that big and successful when I left Nick Greer who's a very noted yeah, that's entrepreneur that's who I took it down, from 
Yeah, he yeah. took over that class. That, that's was the, right. that was my class I started. No way. Yeah, and now it's listed as Business Management 101, I heard, so it's mm-hmm. going to get. And that was really important because a lot of problems at BYU were that uh, people in their senior year would come up so why didn't anybody tell me about entrepreneurship and that I could learn and have this experience and I just found out about when I'm a senior, when I'm way into my education, I've committed to become an accountant and all this and I hate accounting. I wish I would have known about this beforehand and all that. And so I saw a need to bring and introduce these concepts before that, the first time anybody at BYU would hear about it would be late in their junior year. Mm-hmm. Now I was introducing to freshmen and sophomores, which was really important. And so I think that's an important legacy they left there. Another one is the International Business Model Competition, which is now involving thousands of universities across the world and with some of the leaders in Lean Startup. We started a business model competition that now is really state-of-the-art and has been held at Harvard and Microsoft Campus, and it's going to be in Provo this April here in Provo. At BYU's campus, and that one I help with, and that's two. I, mean, yeah, I could list yeah. a lot of things, but yeah, those yeah. are a couple things. Yeah. I love it. So tell us, you talked about how you got into investing, angel investing. Um, I'm curious, what was your first uh, company that you invested in? So here's a common thing about that: how most angel investors are successful entrepreneurs. And when they become liquid, meaning they get actual cash into their bank account from their entrepreneurial suits by selling their company or going public or whatever, and they get a lot of money, they often become angel investors. And it's a very dangerous time, actually. The first year, this is very well known in the industry, the first year after becoming a successful entrepreneur, you'll lose a lot of money as an angel investor. And I did it. And everybody I know... um, Several prominent people around Utah County. I guess I won't name names, yeah. but somebody very successful. I know one guy that lost ten million his first year. Wow! Because goodness. he didn't what? know what he was doing as an angel investor. You just have to. Oh. Yeah. Well, being What's a good on- mistake. Being a good entrepreneur is not does not mean you're going to be a good angel investor. Yeah. And but that's not readily apparent your first year. <laughs> Out of being the successful Do you think it's because you're just riding this high, I just became liquid, I've got all this cash. And I must and be smart I must, and I must know yeah. what I'm doing. Angel investing takes a lot of discipline and understanding of how to do it well. And we all do that. So my first one I did, I put in $500,000 into one company and never got a penny back. Mm-hmm. And that was a mistake to do early stage that much money into one company it's much smarter way you know you're not asking me how to evade invest but i could tell you my philosophy behind that but the so and i did another one in a food related company and that didn't do well my first year investments none of them did really well my second year investments i got a little smarter they did well and my best angel investment ever is omniture and um i flew down from seattle met the two founders uh, on Center Street in Provo in a dingy second floor office and wrote them a check and that was a good move. (laughs) So So you say you got smarter in your second year. Is that just like analyzing the the entrepreneurial team or their personality. Yeah, what do you look like? What's your numbers? Well, it's yeah. not just even on the individual investment. It's more of the angel investing strategy. So that is important. The team and doing your due diligence and understanding the industry and the business it's in, whether they've got a validated business model. Lean Startup has really helped with understanding good businesses. But it's back backing up to answer your question is on the strategy of angel investing. For instance, if I had $500,000 to invest in venture, I don't go take 250000 and put into two startups. That's the sure way to lose your money. What you should do is take 250000 
put 25,000 into 10 different startups that you think are the best you can find in the net over the next year I'm going to invest in 10 companies at $25,000 a piece and choose the 10 best I think it's likely eight of those are going to fail so what you do is when the companies that are the two ones that are succeeding the best and are doing the best and they need to raise their next round of investment you take the second 250,000 put 125,000 each of the top mm. two that's a much better way angel investing is much better to invest a little bit in a lot of them and then the ones that take off and do well you double and triple down yeah. makes sense it's almost like a march madness bracketology you know mm -hmm. you have your you invest yeah. a little bit in each, and the next round you just bigger and bigger pie. Arguably, the best angel investor in the entire state of Utah is a man named Scott Frazier. He's a genius at this, and he's had a great career of doing that. Um, I think by the time he Omnitra went public, he had doubled and tripled down so much he and bought other people's stock that didn't think the company was going to make it. And he said he invested a little bit, and then he kept buying more and more. And by the time it went public, I think he had three million shares. Wow. <laughs> so are there any um, obvious red flags, let's say, you know, you kind of, let's say you go and you uh, get pitched like 10 different business ideas. Are there any red flags with companies, with entrepreneurs that you'd see that would kind of hold you back? Tons of red flags. Yeah. <laughs> Innumerable ones. ones. Yeah. The number one is premature scaling. So you ask them if they've figured out their business model and there's ways to do that. You ask them what uh, business model development research have they done have they figured out how to create capture and deliver value in the marketplace in a consistent way or are they still hypothesizing and guessing at that and they don't know how to do that and then you say well what other activity are you doing so if you see them they've hired salespeople they've done a lot of marketing collateral they've um, rented office space that's expensive they've uh, bought two monitors for every person in the company at their desk and they haven't even figured out their business model yet that's called premature scaling and that's a sure sign of problem real problem so that's you can just see that so by you want to what you really want to see the op absolute opposite of that is somebody seeking money that bootstrapped for a long time has a handful of customers and the last six months they've had consistent growth in revenue and consistent growth in customer counts and now they need the money to grow yeah. That's sense. the best investments, yeah. right? So investing in premature scaling companies is a sure way to lose your money. So, And there's lots of signs of premature scaling. A lot of the research shows that three-quarters of all companies fail because of premature scaling, even if they have a good idea. Because they start doing things before they figured out the business model, and that burns their capital. And then they run out of capital, and they never get to really... It's like stringing your violins. Con or this, it's like stringing your violin constantly and never playing music. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. So, let's talk about this, like nailing the business model for a second. So, a lot of our listeners, I'm sure. I mean, there's the term entrepreneur and <laughs> yeah. entrepreneur, right? right? So, how does someone make that jump from, hey, I'm a entrepreneur, or I'm just dreaming of an idea, and an entrepreneur in terms of Okay, I have an idea. I think this is cool. Like, how do I go make a valuable business model out of that? Okay, well, first of all, this is the beautiful thing about the last 10 years in entrepreneurship. About 10 years ago, Steve Blank 
a noted entrepreneur that made about $500 million with his company and then became an adjunct professor at Stanford and Berkeley, went to Stanford and Berkeley in his first semester, found out that the professors there were teaching entrepreneurship wrong and backwards. And he declared that in a book called Four Steps to the Epiphany. That was a very poorly written book in terms of authorship, but it was a very important book in terms of content. It condemned the last hundred years of entrepreneurial teaching at universities in the United States and the practice and theory of entrepreneurship in the United States and how it was being done. The real entrepreneurs that figured out organically on their own um, how to do it right, we had never codified the system properly. So Steve Blank led to the codification of lean startup, which was actually how you approach things in a lean way using, you know, like agile development and computers and agile systems in business. We say, well, for startups, we got to have agile systems. And that's what lean startup is. And it's a replicable process mm -hmm. to create a startup. It doesn't change the failure rate of humans. Humans are still going to fail in their ideas at the same rate. They're going to come up with ideas, and they're all going to fail at a still a high rate. But what Lean Startup does is forces the failure to be fast and upfront where it's cheap, not elongated down the road when lots of capital has been invested lots of time, and you find out it's a failure. You find out about the failure fast. So the first thing I would tell somebody is you've got to read the now codification of Lean Startup and that best book is The Startup Owner's Manual by Steve Blank and Bob Dorf. That's a masterpiece book that I've had asked hundreds of people to read just when I meet with them for lunch or breakfast. About half the people read it and they say this changed my life. The other half don't read it and try to pretend they read it and meet with me and they don't really read it. It's interesting. A $30 book, $9 on Audible, sometimes even cheaper, you know, on a special deal on Amazon and that book you read that book, it saves the first 10 hours I would need to have one-on-one -on -one mentoring with you. Really? And then um, you will understand the process of what you need to do in order to hypothesize your business model and then go test it in a scientific process So you until you eventually arrive at the, um, at the uh, business model that will work. Mm -hmm. And it's an iterative process. Should I pause and tell her not to walk in those high heels? <laughs> I don't want to. You may have to edit this. Yeah, we now. can. We can like. Sorry. No, no, it's fine. We're gonna we, we go back and edit. Much yeah. Hours. Go ahead. All right, we're back. Sorry about that. No, it's totally fine. I just could hear her heels. I didn't yeah, want yeah. them on the background. No, that was good. But so, does that make sense? Yeah. Okay, so you want me to keep going a little bit? So, or um, or is that? But start ignition. Reading that book. That book. And then and then get mentors and people around you and investors that understand Lean Startup because they will force you to break the rules of Lean Startup. The problem right now is we've had lots of entrepreneurs trained in Lean Startup, mm -hmm. but very few investors and support people around entrepreneurship that have been trained in it. And you'll get an entrepreneur trained in Lean Startup, and then all of a sudden he gets his first investor, and that first investor pushes him to do the wrong things. Yeah. Interesting. So I have a question for you so when you're starting a business a lot of times people run into roadblocks you know and you know you're supposed to take risks as an entrepreneur it's kind of the name of the game right you need to be able to to take risks but when would you say is a sign that the roadblocks are too high that the risks are too much maybe you should kind of you know uh well i, I think and i kind of walk away you know take some loss well, I, the risks are always there. Really, it should be when do you think you're not going to be successful or you can't figure out a business model is how I would state that in the, in the world of entrepreneurship. So um, 
you know, in, in Lean Startup Doctrine, what we do is we hypothesize a business model and we run experiments to test the assumptions in that business model. We assume the product market fit is there. We assume these two target customer groups are going to buy our product. And we have to go take those assumptions and test them. And so when you're conducting these experiments or these hypothesis and assumption testing and you're finding that it's not going well, that your assumptions are not proving out, not bearing out, then we either abandon the project or we pivot to a business model that will work within that idea. And so that's what you do. Either, as they say, persevere, pivot, or abandon. And so, um, and that's what you need to do. So it's really not about, is entrepreneurship's risky, generally speaking, but you can really mitigate the risk by making failure fast and cheap up front as opposed to expensive. The worst thing you do, let's, the average successful business pivots two and a half major times to completely different business models than what they thought at the beginning. So if you take your first hypothesis for a business model and don't do assumption testing and raise capital and try to force that round peg into the square hole for the next two years of your life and at the end of the two years it all fails and you spent two years of your life and took a lot less no pay situation spend investor capital or friends and family money that's a very expensive way to do entrepreneurship in lean startup in the first two months we would figure out it's a failure and we need to pivot to a new business model or even abandon the project with very little time and money spent relatively speaking that's how it, you would decide to move on by pivoting or abandoning and doing something else. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. Yeah. So when meeting with potential companies or people who are hoping to start something, what traits do you look for in a founding team or what does a founding team look like that you're like, that's, that's solid or like what things do you just look for in terms of just founding teams or founding individuals? So, um, it's kind of interesting when you say that it's the great holy grail of analytics and angel investing would be give a test to somebody and it comes back and says, this is going to be a great entrepreneur. That would be fantastic. There's actually an effort trying to do that. There's an academic effort trying to do that where they literally take a person's name and their startup company and then go out into social media and the internet and actually try to assess on a one, zero to 100 scale how likely of a, that will be as a good venture investment. Wow. Hmm. It's really interesting. I've actually tested with a number of Utah companies, and I'm working with the academic that's working on that. And probably about 20 tested companies, only two came up with a score of 90 or above, which 90 or above is where a VC should invest in it. Really? Yeah, 18 out of 20 didn't. Kind what were those two companies? Um, I probably shouldn't say right now, but <laughs> okay. just, just, just because I don't know if I'm at liberty to say in the system. Yeah. But if you want to check out the system, it's Angel, A-I-N-G-E-L is the name of it. And you can probably Google that term and find the website for it. It's very fascinating. But it's kind of an interesting. But that would be fantastic if there were a test like that. Yeah. If there isn't really a test like that, at least not something that's automatically proven to work, right, in, yeah. in a way people are trying to do that. So you have to look at the team and make an assessment. And you're looking at, you know, just perseverance often um often the uh if you look at it i think 50 percent of success in entrepreneurship is not giving up too early you know pivoting finding a way to make it work as opposed to just giving up too early Mm -hmm. that's about there's been so many times in my career where i was working on a product within my company or something and 
eight people said we should give up it's not working i said let's give it two more months and then it takes off and the proverbial hockey stick that's happened a lot it's if you stay with something it seems like society or the vertical culture you're in starts realizing hmm these guys are for real they're in the game they're still staying there maybe we'll try them now it looks like they figured something out and then they sign up as a customer and things start taking off mm-hmm. I like that so anyway that but back to the team question so perseverance is there um teachability or humility however you want to say that um people that are strong and even often to the point of quirkiness and sometimes a little weird but they're still learn and are teachable and will learn from others people that don't want to learn from others or think they have all the answers they can maybe you know lead a team that really believes in them and there's all this confidence but at the end if they're not learning and teaching from all the other people you know or learning from what's being taught around them that can cause problems so it's kind of funny a lot of the uber successful entrepreneurs are really weird and quirky and kind of imbalanced in a lot of ways mm-hmm. but one of the common things they're still teachable yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah totally it does. does. So who, who's an example of just what someone who's extremely quirky that you've experienced that you're just like, man, that is so quirky, but he's super successful, or she. That's yeah. Successful. Well, you, let's take Josh James, right, mm-hmm. of Omniture. Um, he was a theater major, and um, he almost wanted to give up many times and all that, and, and he has some quirkiness. He probably would admit that himself. And he, uh, but... You never count Josh out. I mean, he look at the success with Amish and what it's done for the state of Utah. But then also, if you take a look at his new company, Domo, a lot of people are going, well, is it going to make it? How's it going to go? I never count Josh out because he will do things others won't do. He'll go to the floor to make things work. And, mm-hmm. and you just it's hard to count him out. And there's a number of great entrepreneurs in the local area like that here in Utah that I've seen do that and you know you look at Steve Jobs just as an example I mean he was fired from his own company and he went off and created uh, another computer next computer that had a modest success and got bought by you know and then goes and does Pixar (laughs) and then comes back to Apple when Apple's literally going to die Mm -hmm. and Literally, I don't know, you know, in the 90s, it was yeah. going to die. And he goes and talks Bill Gates into lending him $150 million to save Apple. And then look, the rest is history, right? Yeah. I mean, that that kind of thing is you see people like that, but they can sometimes seem arrogant or whatever, but really they're still very teachable mm-hmm. and learning and listening to what's going on around them. Yeah. So does that make sense? Yeah. Um, I think uh, the antithesis of that, of the ones that aren't that way, are ones that have to have a right answer all the time. And they almost stymie themselves because they can't find the right answer. So a kind of a left brain engineering mind, those are the worst ones to be like the CEO leaders of a company. Because entrepreneurship is not about exactness. It's I like to say it like this, if it's it's about moving swiftly through decisions. So because every day there's so many decisions that a CEO founder of a startup needs to make. Let's say that I have a decision and there's ten possible ways to go. I quickly need to discard six of them as not good. And then I say, oh, there's these four, but I don't know which is the best of these four. And it's the leader that can be comfortable saying, okay, I'm choosing this one and we're going for it. 
the actual move of choosing one of those four, even if a year later you could look back and prove that you chose number four out of four of those, <laughs> you're still farther ahead and advance your cause and become more successful because you made the decision and did something as opposed to taking so much time to get to the exact right answer. Does it. that make sense? Yeah, it's just moving forward. Yeah. What are your thoughts on getting an MBA for people who want to be entrepreneurs? <laughs> That's an interesting question. This is a loaded question because of my colleagues in the university world, but I'll just be asked so I'm going to answer it. Um, in my entire 12 years at BYU, um, I saw tens or scores of companies created by undergraduate students that achieved 10 million more revenue or exits for 10 million or more creating multi-millionaires all over the place matter of fact every undergraduate class i taught at the 400 level within five years out of about 30 students would have one to four multi-millionaires hmm. i tracked it i taught mba pardon i should have taken that class uh, uh yeah and i taught two mba classes hmm. same course material the MBAs were more intelligent on average did better work better presentation skills better ideas <laughs> didn't launch any of them <laughs> they all went and took their corporate jobs um, the ones that were started in my entire 12 years at BYU by MBA students never really made it past a year of life and I can't think of one that made it to success it's crazy wow. and they don't like me saying that very often because entrepreneurship program and MBAs got a great program and they teach a lot of stuff there but you can go look at if you go back and look at the last 50 great companies coming from students at BYU they're gonna be almost all undergraduate students I'm talking about started while in school yeah. right yeah. and um, and so I don't think an MBA correlates really well matter of fact the MBA education teaches you to be risk averse. Just like you go to law school or MBA school and you can pick apart any idea or any new startup idea and come up with 10 reasons why it's going to fail. Mm -hmm. The undergraduate student that starts their company doesn't know they're not supposed to succeed, so they just go succeed. Interesting. It, I'm serious. I yeah. see this is a really big, it's a great question you're asking yeah. and a really big belief of mine. And it's interesting. It's a very fascinating. I think an MBA hurts you from being a better entrepreneur. It's interesting. So I taught gymnastics uh, to like little children, you know, we teach them how to do like back handsprings and stuff. And I'd watch these little kids do a back handspring that land right on their head. And they'd get up and they'd look around and they'd be fine because they don't yeah. really understand yeah. neck, breaking your neck, you're going to die, <laughs> yeah. paralysis. Yeah. They don't know. And so they just go back and the, the coach, you know, would always be really calm. Like, that's fine. You're good. Just go do it yeah. again. But then you see, you know, these teenagers try yeah. it and they know breaking your neck and paralysis and the fear that comes along with it. And it's almost like the ignorance. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. There, let me tell you a story to really bring this home. You want to hear an interesting story? I won't mention names. So there was a company that had entered into the business. Um, the BYU is a very big, successful, one of the most noted in the country. Uh, it's called the business plan competition. It's called the new venture challenge now. And, there was this company that didn't make it into the top eight. It got thrown out by some judges because they have a lot of judges in the program and they didn't recognize it. Uh, my One of my colleagues and I who were more experts in online businesses um, found this and looked at it and go, how come this didn't make it in? This is incredible. This would be really good. And 
and we think a good business model we could really be something and we gave it a special prize from the e-business center just because we saw this and it didn't make it into the top eight and we saw this and we gave him a five thousand dollar prize at a special comp thing and noted we had a picture taken with them everything and right after the picture was taken with their big check for five thousand dollars um the three mba students they were mba students we said now you're going to go launch this right and they all started looking at each other when they were holding up that big check you know for the photo and they go uh and and he said, well, what are you doing? And the one guy said, I'm going to work at Procter & Gamble. I'm going to go work at Credit Suisse. I'm going to work at Microsoft. And the leader, the guy who would have been CEO, was going to go work at Microsoft. So we go, oh, man, you should do this. Those jobs will always be there. Those companies will always be there. Mm -hmm. Wow. <laughs> and they didn't launch the company. Four years later, I get a call from that one who went to Microsoft. He goes, Professor Richards, I'm coming to Utah and I want to take you to lunch. I got to talk to you. And I go, oh, how are you doing? And he goes, uh, you probably know what I want to talk about. And I go, I have a guess. And so he goes, I'll be there. So I don't want to talk about it right now. We'll talk when we get there. And so he comes down. We go to P.F. Chang's in Orem for, uh, for lunch. And, you know, and before our seats hit the chairs, I go, I think I know what you want to talk about. And he goes, yeah. And he proceeds to tell me. Do you know for the last four years I've been at Microsoft and about my during my second year I see this guy out of Chicago start my idea and my idea was even better than his and he just got offered six billion dollar buyout from Google. Oh my gosh. Man. It was Groupon. Oh wow. Get out. He had the idea two years before Andrew Morton, I think is the name of the guy from Chicago yeah. for Groupon, but even a better twist to it. Huh. And he did not launch it. Man. <laughs> so did he end up trying to launch another no, company? No, he just was Doing commiserating. I go, we t and I said, we sat there and told you, we gave you a prize and said, go start this. Yeah. Wow. And you didn't do it. That's crazy. That epitomizes what happens in MBA programs. Hmm. Interesting. <laughs> okay, so we're going to transition to, we call it the popcorn section. Okay. And it's just rapid fire, quick, fun okay. questions. Yeah. Okay. And then we close out with final thoughts. And okay. And it's one yeah. question each. So... My first one is, what's the latest show that you've been binging? The latest show that I've been binging? Yeah. That's interesting. Um, what was the latest one was 12 Monkeys. I've never, never heard of this. you never heard of 12 Monkeys? No. It's, no. it's on sci-fi. It's awesome. Four seasons. Really? Yeah. yeah. I love time travel. Uh -huh. And it's a time travel show where... Um, the uh, it's based on the movie with Brad Pitt from years ago, but the series took it to a new level. It's really fascinating. It's about uh, a virus that kills almost every seven billion, leaves one hundred fifty million living, huh. um, and uh, but in the future, as there's still some humans living, they invent time travel. They go back and try to stop the virus. Wow. That's really interesting. Wow. <laughs> Have you uh, seen the movie Arrival? Um, yeah, I th yes, I have. That's a good one about yeah. time travel. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's good. I'm a, I love time travel. Yeah, it's supposed to be the same. Yeah. Okay, if you could eat at any restaurant for free in, in the Provo Orm area for life, which restaurant would you want to mm. choose? Mm, gosh, okay. 
quick answers you want, right? Probably Carabas. Really? Mm-hmm. Their filet marsala uh-huh. is, we think, the best dish in town. Wow, that, wow. All my adult children, when it's birthday time, they go get the filet marsala for their I birthday. i got to try it. I know. Yeah. It's yeah. not even on the menu anymore, but you can still ask for it. Okay. It's, okay. it's their filet steak with a marsala sauce. It's just delicious. It sounds good. <laughs> yeah. um, this is one of our favorites. What purchase of $100 or less in the last six months have you made that has most benefited your life? $100 or less? That's oh gosh, hundred dollars or less. Mmm. What would it be? Gosh, I don't know. For hundred dollars or less. Well, there's um, a purchase I do that costs me four dollars a month. That is a software purchase of a tool that takes everybody you interact with on Gmail. It automatically adds their contacts their contact information to my contacts file. That's very, so I'll be in my phone and go, who was that person? I gotta look them up, but I'm so late. All the business cards I get, all yeah. the contacts I have, I don't put them into my system. You know, it takes a lot of effort. So this thing automatically does it so that, and it's such a nice experience when I go to my contacts on my phone and that person's there with all their information, their phone number and email when I need to find them. That's cool. Before that, I would go, oh, who's that person? What's their information? But now it's... What's it called? Yeah. It's called Quagga. Okay. Uh, no, no, it was called Quagga. They've renamed to EverContact now. It was K-W-A-G-A, but uh, E-V-E-R-C-O-N-T-A-C-T. Okay. EverContact. Cool. Ever it just, it's just like a... I don't know if it's a Chrome extension or what it is, but it just... Whatever I'm doing in my Gmail... Sounds convenient, yeah puts it in my contacts right. if there's any contact information on a person <laughs> okay so you're in our shoes you get to interview anyone in the world for an hour just pick their brain who would you want to interview mm. gosh i would probably have to say that if i wanted to interview for an hour probably jeff bezos i have to admit because i'm from seattle i met him very briefly right as he launched amazon in 1995 Wow. Up there. And then I met him years later when he was a gazillionaire here when he was the Hall of Fame speaker for the Utah Technology um, Hall of Fame dinner. And it would just be interesting to um, talk to him because one thing that intrigues me about him is what Warren Buffett said. Jeff Bezos, the reason why he's a unique entrepreneur is there's never been in Warren Buffett's opinion, an entrepreneur that has so massively dominated two industries at the same time. It's to do one is one thing, but two disparate industries. So you take e-commerce, you know, and like 44% of all Christmas online sales were Amazon last year or something, right? Mm-hmm. You know, and just the domination of that space. And then AWS, Amazon Web Services, in its complete dominance, it's six times bigger than all of its competitors combined in the cloud infrastructure business. And he dominates both of those simultaneously. That's a really rare and hard achievement for an individual or a company to do. I mean, so dominant. Yeah. And so it'd be fun just to... Totally. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting. Yeah. I love it. Okay, final thoughts. We get one question each, and then we'll close it up. But um, what failure in your life has most benefited you? That's an interesting thing to say. Hmm. 
I would have to say that um, when I was in the print yellow page business, I faced an attack from a competitor, U.S. West, the Bell Company, one of the baby Bells that broke off from AT&T and became the 14-state dominant player in, in Utah as well as Washington. It was called U.S. West, and I don't know if you two have heard of that or not, but it's a huge company. And um, it was competing against me in Seattle and Portland, and it was interesting. They had I hired some people that were kind of like spies for them, and they got into my company, and it was really interesting. And I sued them. And I sued them for antitrust behavior, which didn't really want to do it, but they just did some things I had to do to fend them off. And it ended up that I beat them. They, they What happened was these people that took a job with me, they left and started up an exact duplicate company of mine, a second fighting brand for the big company to fight against me. Mm-hmm. So they learned all everything I was doing. And so the lawsuit came down to where it was at the very end and they offered me a settlement. I didn't take it. And when the lawsuit ended in the trial, we won on one small piece, but they awarded us no damages. So that was a loss, a failure yeah. in that. But it stopped them. But it also weakened my company just enough in the print world to where I was open to the Internet, Yellow Pages idea. Because before that, I might have been so arrogant thinking that the print business is going to survive all technology. And by that happening and weakening me a little in the print business, just a little bit, enough to hurt me to think maybe the print business is not going to last forever. Then when the internet came along and the internet yellow pages idea that I talked about earlier, that allowed me to be open to see where this industry could go and that there's potential for something to wipe out this $25 billion behemoth industry that had been around for 100 years, right? The first Yellow Pages was in the 1880s when Alexander Graham Bell first had 50 phones in a, and they said, we need a list of numbers. How are we going to pay for this printing of this list? Oh, let's sell ads. That's how it started in the 1880s and became a huge industry. But that weakness and that failure caused me to be open to other opportunities. And I sold my print company and made good money, but going public with the internet, Yellow Pages idea and company was vastly superior. And so that closed door opened another door to use an old saying. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. So we've kind of mentioned this a few times and you've kind of enlightened us a little bit, but just kind of you know concise and short, the for some listeners that are standing on the edge and they have the, the corporate job offers or maybe they have the jobs already and they, they have this idea and they want to take that step into the darkness, what would you say to them? That somebody that's working for a corporation, to be clear, that, that's what you're saying? Yeah, they just have the safe life. You know? Okay, yeah. The, the safe life. They're working no for the man, as the I call for it. The that's man. my slogan for that. Yeah. <laughs> okay. They want to leave. So they need to realize that probably nowhere in life is there a greater financial opportunity than starting your own business if you think about it if i if i um am getting a salary near market rate salary working in a safe company and all that but i have this burning idea something i want to do on my own strike out on my own with the principles of lean startup i don't have to quit that job to validate the business model because I'm not starting a company with a startup. A startup is a different animal. It's like the caterpillar and the butterfly is the company. During the caterpillar phase, 
I don't have to quit my job. I don't even have to quit school. I can validate the business model, putting in some of my time and doing my work, analytical work, to validate a business model. It's not until it becomes a butterfly in a real company where I need employees that I can have to quit and really start a company up. And so we're in an era with a mechanism to do that. So the risk can really be mitigated. Now, also, once I do quit that job and go from a $100,000 salary or whatever I'm making and I'm starting my company and making very little to no money, I think about, okay, so I'm going to give up $200,000 over the next two years of gross income to me. You know, of course, net income be less than that. But I own the lion's share of stock in a startup company that could be worth a million dollars, $10 million, $50 million if it's successful. And however I go, is it guaranteed that's going to happen? No, I could fail too. But where can I trade that small amount of money for that one to two years that I take a run at a company and have such an incredible exit potential and upside? There's very few places. I can invest in real estate, but it takes me 20, 30 years to amass what I could in a company. I start a company. Think about this. I start a company. I get friends and family to invest in it and give me $100,000 and they get 10% of the company. Well, that's already created an asset then that for me is worth $900,000 because I own the other 90% right? Now it's on paper. It's not real money yet that I can spend to buy houses and cars, but it's a real asset. And then I keep going down my venture path and raise money and capital or, and I get customers and all of a sudden my company's worth two, three, four, five million dollars. And it's on paper. It's not liquid yet. I can't sell the stock to anybody, but someday I'll sell the company and do that. So I, and by the third year I'm paying myself a salary and I'm just saying it's, you know, and that's true even if you go take a job in an entrepreneurial startup company. If I trade in my $100,000 job for a $50,000 job with a hot startup, I'm the number five guy, not the founder. You know, there's three founders and I'm the second employee they hire and I take a low salary of $50,000 when I could earn 100000 at a big company. I'm giving up 50000 for a year, but if they gave me stock options worth 1.5% of the company to do that, and the company becomes worth a hundred million. Yeah. I just made a million dollars or a million and a half dollars trading fifty thousand for. That's a really good ROI if you think about it in just those terms. Yeah. So that's what I say to people. I sit them down. I have a lot of conversations where I help entrepreneurs talk top talent into joining their company because they don't understand it that way a lot of times. And their spouses. Don't. It's a very big problem where spouses do not get how. You know, also in today's environment, large companies, your only guarantee is that, you know, you have two weeks of a job in front of you. You have no idea when a two-week yeah. notice is going to come and it's you're true. not there anymore, right? Yeah. Or the company could fail. Yeah. And then it also boils down to lifestyle choice, too. Here's, let me end on this note, and I know you're going to maybe ask me some questions, but on that question, this is a very common thing I say. How do you know when you should quit your job and go do it? How do you know when you should take the risk or take this lifestyle change and do it? And it's the person who says, John, I cannot not do this. That's the, I cannot not do this. And one person who said that to me, I remember, is Adam Edmonds, the founder of Silent Whistle that became Allegiance Technology that became Merit CX here locally for that company. So Adam was one week away as a master's of accounting student taking a sweetheart job at the city and the company wanted with KPMG. And one week before, and he had a, 
three series BMW, had made a down payment on a house as a master student. He'd been really smart and good. He was about to get a great paying job and all that. And he went and told his wife one week before the job started. He graduated two and a half months earlier. The job was starting. And um, he told his wife, uh, we're selling the car. We're selling the house. And we're going back to a one-bedroom apartment because I can't not start this company. It's in me. I have this idea. It's got to come out of me. And he did it. Stressful for his wife. My wife and I went to wife with Hannah's dinner when it was stressful and stuff like that. But now Adam's wildly successful. Adam um, was successful, so that company all that. And then he helped the two BYU students at Podium. He's the president of Podium now. Wow. <laughs> so does that make sense? Yeah, love yeah. it. Yeah, I think that's a perfect way to end right there. Yeah. So really do appreciate you. Thanks so much. Thank yeah, you. this is just really valuable. We loved uh -huh. it.